Hello, and welcome to the Dr. Jocker's Functional Nutrition Podcast, the show designed to give you science-based solutions to improve your health and life. I'm Dr. David Jockers, doctor of natural medicine and creator of drjockers.com, and I'm the host of this podcast. I'm here to tell you that your body was created to heal itself, and on this show, we focus on strategies you can apply today to heal and function at your best. Thanks for spending time with me, and let's go into the show. This podcast is sponsored by Peak Tea, and I really love these teas because they're specifically formulated to enhance the benefits of fasting. That's right, deeper levels of cellular healing and autophagy, and they're designed to shut down appetite and support healthy weight management. They're delicious. They won't break your fast. And they are the highest quality because they're extracted via cold brew crystallization that gently preserves the active compounds at their maximum potential. They're 100% organic and triple toxin screen for pesticides, heavy metals, and toxic mold. You would be surprised how many teas out there, if you test them, actually full of chemicals, full of heavy metals, pesticides, mold, super common in the tea industry, but not peak tea. They use the triple toxin screening and they're the highest possible purity. Now, I really like their bergamot fasting tea, which is amazing for your energy. You know, a lot of times when people are fasting, especially doing an extended fast, they're just energy plummets. Bergamot fasting tea will really help with that. It's loaded with theoflavins that nourish your gut bacteria, support digestion, and boost satiety. And this is key. So a lot of times when you're fasting, you know, your, your, your healthy gut bacteria die off while your bad bacteria die. We want the bad bacteria to die we don't want the good bacteria to die. These theoflavins are going to selectively nourish the healthy gut bacteria to keep your microbiome intact. And you're going to get that from the bergamot. It also offers a flavorful burst of citrus. Its oils, again, enhance digestion. They provide unique mood-boosting properties as well. Also really good for the skin. They also have a great ginger green fasting tea. We know ginger supports your digestion. And we know green tea is rich in catechins. The two combined, ginger and green tea, super good for your immune system, great for energy levels. They also have a great cinnamon herbal fasting tea that I love. It supports balanced blood sugar, helps manage cravings. It's naturally caffeine-free, tastes amazing. You guys, they have a ton of different flavors, like 20 different flavors. Um, so you'll find something that you really like. And Peak is extending a limited time offer just for my audience. You can get 5% off plus a free pouch that comes with 20 premium samples so you can try all their different types when you purchase a fasting bundle. Just head over to peaklife.com forward slash drjockers. Use the coupon code D-R-J-O-C-K-E-R-S for a special discount. Peak has over 15,000. Listen to that. 15,000 five-star reviews. That means people are loving this. So try it for yourself risk-free with their 30-day satisfaction guarantee, and you'll either love it or you get your money back. So go to peaklife.com, spelled P-I-Q-U-E-L-I-F-E.com slash drjockers and use the coupon code D-R-J-O-C-K-E-R-S for a complimentary gift and 5% off. Welcome back to the podcast. I have got a great topic today. It's diabetes of the brain. There's so much research out now connecting dementia, Alzheimer's disease, different neurodegenerative conditions, and just neurological conditions, even mood disorders, brain fog, um, slow processing, poor memory, all of that being associated with insulin resistance and blood sugar dysregulation. And so I brought on Dr. Brian Mole. He is the founder and medical director of Sweet Life Diabetes Health Centers and serves clients worldwide as the diabetes coach. For over 20 years, Dr. Mole has been helping people around the world to optimize their health and metabolism, control blood sugar, and reverse type 2 diabetes using a natural, personalized lifestyle approach. In addition, he's the host of the number one rated Mastering Blood Sugar podcast and author of the number one international best-selling book, The Pro-Fast Diet, Burn Fat and Reverse Type 2 Diabetes in Just Six Weeks. And we're going to talk all about insulin resistance, what it is how it impacts the brain. I know you guys are going to get so much out of this. If you know anybody that's dealing with issues with dementia, Alzheimer's, neurodegenerative conditions, diabetes, this is a powerful podcast. Definitely share it with them. And if you have not left us a five-star review, now is the time to do that. 
Just go ahead to Apple iTunes, leave us a review. When you do that, that helps us reach more people and impact more lives with this message. Thank you so much for doing that. And let's go into the show. Well, Dr. Brian, welcome. And uh, I know we're talking about diabetes of the brain, such a hot topic. So let's talk about the connection between blood sugar dysregulation, insulin resistance, and brain health. Yeah, thank you, Dr. Dave. Appreciate it, man. And this is a, a really, really important topic. It's one that I don't think people like to think about, but it's sort of, uh, no pun intended, sort of in the back of the mind as just one of those things that no one ever wants to deal with. You know, like it's probably if you can list out some of the worst things to suffer with in your old age, Alzheimer's or dementia would be probably at the top of just about everybody's list. So it's uh, it's an important thing. And uh, one thing that, you know, I think we can help people to understand is that there's a lot you can do to prevent it um, if you focus and pay attention on keeping the brain healthy. And I'm glad you mentioned insulin resistance because really uh, Alzheimer's disease and in fact, all forms of dementia, including uh, Lewin body dementia and vascular dementia, have uh, one thing in common, and that is their connection to metabolic health or poor metabolic health, metabolic dysfunction, as uh, I like to call it. And it's really more about insulin resistance than diabetes. You know, this is, uh, we, we talk about type 3 diabetes has, has been uh, coined as diabetes of the brain. Um, I don't love the term because uh, you really don't need to have high blood sugar, which is the characteristic of diabetes, to develop dementia. Um, it's it's really it's about insulin resistance, which is the underlying cause of type two diabetes and prediabetes, and uh, you know many uh, cases of obesity and overweight and and PCOS and other things like that. Uh, but it is also the root of I would venture to say most cases of dementia of, of all kinds. Yeah. And that's really interesting that you said that you don't actually have to have high blood sugar. Cause typically when people think about, and this is really how, how diabetes is diagnosed is high blood sugar over 126, uh, fasting blood sugar, but somebody could have a normal blood sugar on a, on a lab test, or, you know, even if they're checking their blood sugar on their own, but their insulin may be through the roof. And most doctors are not actually testing your fasting insulin levels, which is a great test to look at, and your body may be putting out so much insulin in an attempt to try to get the sugar out of the bloodstream and put it into the cells. And so let's talk a little bit about the dynamics there. What is, why is insulin so important and why is insulin sensitivity so important to keep blood sugar under control? Yeah, good question. So uh, insulin is uh, really, I mean, it's hard to rank them, but one of the most important hormones in the body, we certainly could not live without it. Just ask anybody with type 1 diabetes who doesn't make insulin, how important insulin is for their life. Uh, and uh, you'll you know quickly find out that this is a uh, nice. this is this is a life or death or so you, know, we you can't need get nutrients into a cell. I mean, you can't get sugar, right, nutrients right. like magnesium. You can't get them into the cell without insulin. So it's literally like right. a key that opens the door, right? Yeah. So, uh, you know, when diabetes was first described, um, you know, hundreds of years ago, it was uh, described as basically, a you know, almost like we see in late stage cancer, the pe people were withering away because they couldn't store anything. So they couldn't store fat, they couldn't store carbs, they couldn't maintain muscle, they couldn't even hold on to minerals. So everything was just liquefying in the body coming out through the urine. So in the in the urine, you would see high sugar, you'd see high ketones, you'd see high sodium, you'd see all of this stuff just pouring out of the body because there's no insulin to hold it in. And so, yeah, that's what insulin does. And so it's so important, but you can imagine if you have too much insulin, then too much gets held back. So you get uh, too much fat in storage. You know, you get uh, the uh, kidneys hold on to too many of those um, 
you know, important uh, minerals, which are electrolytes and important for fluid dynamics in the body. So our blood pressure goes up because we're retaining those. And that's ultimately what leads to this metabolic dysfunction. So we get inflammation, high blood pressure, we get overweight and obese. And all of that is sort of the other side of the coin from what I described of these people withering away, they're sort of in this chronic state of storage and growth, you know, of uh, fat tissue and so forth. So, uh, so then you ask, well, what causes high insulin? And high insulin can come both uh, sort of acutely from uh, cert certain dietary influences, like if you eat a high sugar, high carbohydrate diet, you're going to get a huge insulin surge, and it can come chronically. And that usually is due to uh, a poor metabolic health state, which largely comes from bad body composition. So, you know, we've got too much fat storage, not enough muscle mass. And so the body shifts and, and the body becomes insulin resistant, which we mentioned earlier, and then shifts into this high insulin state. And it's that high insulin that ultimately leads to uh, cardiovascular stress, uh, endothelial dysfunction and things like Alzheimer's disease and, and brain uh, issues. In fact, even cognitive dysfunction, we'll see that in people who are insulin resistant. Yeah. And now let's talk about, so we're talking about insulin being this key hormone that drives nutrients into cells. And so as the cells lose their sensitivity, right? So the we need more and more insulin. Our body starts producing more and more insulin to try to get these nutrients like, like glucose or sodium or magnesium, whatever it is, into the cells. Um, what is happening here with our brain and our neurons? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. And, and sometimes I've heard it described that, um, you know, if you're insulin resistant, you can't get glucose into the brain for fuel. So the brain doesn't have uh, that you know, fuel to burn and and so forth, and that that's what leads to the problem. That's not that's not exactly true. I think that um, there are cells. So so first of all, we have to look at what which cells respond to insulin and what the response is. So for example, the the way you just described it is exactly right for certain cells. So like muscle cells, for example, they need insulin to take up glucose in a resting state. When you're exercising, it's a little bit different, but when you're in a resting state, uh, the what's called the uh, GLUT4 glucose transporter is insulin dependent. So insulin, like you said, is the key that unlocks that, allows the glucose to come in. Fat cells are the same. They also have insulin dependent glucose transporters. Liver cells do not. So they have something called GLUT2, which is not insulin dependent. So glucose can just flow right into the liver, doesn't need insulin to do that. But what insulin does in the liver is it basically stops you from breaking down glucose. So uh, in the form of glycogen, and then also there's something called gluconeogenesis, which is the production of new glucose from other substrates. And insulin basically puts the brake on those two processes. So uh, you don't release glucose into the bloodstream. This is important, and we'll get to the brain here in a second, but this is important because a lot of people say, you know, geez, I'm fasting and my blood sugar is still high. You know, how is that even possible? And you have to look at, okay, where is that glucose coming from? It's not coming from your diet. It's coming from your liver. Your liver is basically uh, either releasing its stored glucose, the glycogen it stores, and sort of releasing that into the body. That's for the first maybe 24 hours. After that, it's making glucose and exporting it. Um, and you have to ask, well, why is it high? Why isn't it keeping the blood sugar normal? And that's because it's insulin resistant. The insulin is not there to hold back that process. So it's over overdoing it. Um, in the brain, there are some cells that are insulin sensitive, but the majority of brain cells are not. The majority of brain cells can just readily, readily absorb glucose and use them for fuel. Uh, but insulin has other functions in the body than just um, allowing certain cells to uptake glucose. Uh, and it has, uh, it has functions in the brain that are important for uh, for um, 
function basically. And one of the things is there's an enzyme which actually breaks down uh, insulin, which also breaks down uh, plaques in the brain. And uh, I know there's some controversy around amyloid plaques and how, you know, whether that's really the cause of Alzheimer's disease. I, I don't, seems like it's probably not the uh, primal cause, but uh, definitely we see an association there. And those plaques can certainly create some dysfunction. And the body breaks those down, but the, the same enzyme that breaks those down breaks down insulin. So a lot of that gets used up uh, breaking down all that excess insulin. And so it doesn't break down the amyloid plaque. So that's one of the connections. Interesting. Um, yeah. And we also know that um, inside the brain, insulin has some uh, function for fuel metabolism and, and metabolic function. So um, it's not so much whether the brain absorbs glucose out of the bloodstream. That's going to happen for most brain cells. Um, although there are parts of the brain um, that are insulin dependent, and those parts do seem to be, you know, a little bit more connected to uh, Alzheimer's disease, but um, but but it's more complicated than that. What we know though is that with insulin resistance, typically comes high insulin. That's a contributed to Alzheimer's disease. We know that it's there's dysfunctional glucose utilization. That's a connection to Alzheimer's disease. And we know that that high insulin triggers chronic inflammation, and there's a strong connection there to Alzheimer's disease. So if we can uh, improve metabolic health, improve body composition, improve insulin sensitivity, lower blood insulin levels back to normal, I think that's going to be very protective uh, for long-term brain health and allow people to prevent things like Alzheimer's and other forms of dementia. Yeah, it's a really great uh, explanation there, Dr. Brian. And and when people have blood sugar dysregulation, some individuals get high insulin. Other individuals deal a lot with reactive hypoglycemia or hypoglycemic mm -hmm. types of episodes, which can be really, really damaging to the brain, right? Because there's right. not enough blood sugar. And this is why, you know, for, for a lot of people when they have hypoglycemia, the main symptoms that they experience are associated with brain symptoms, anxiety, irritability, cravings, sometimes nausea, which, you know, in this case is, is actually brain related nausea, not stomach related nausea typically. Um, you know, so they're, they're experiencing, you know, the, the hangry, kind of a uh, feeling that I'm sure, you know, most people that are listening here have experienced at some point in their life. So what is happening there when somebody has hypoglycemia or like a reactive hypoglycemia a few hours after a meal? Yeah. So really good point. And, and you're right. When you don't have the blood sugar, you don't have the glucose in your blood to, uh, for the brain to take up and use, then the brain is going to suffer. And not only the brain, but all the other organs like your heart as well. Um, you know, the, the heart can burn other fuels. It can burn fat. It can burn ketones. The muscles can burn fat, glucose, ketones. But, um, but you know, they like to burn glucose in a, uh, in a short window. Um, it's readily absorbable. It's usually readily available. It's a quick burn, um, a little bit dirtier fuel perhaps, but it's a quick burn. So the... Um, so when that's not available, uh, certain organs, particularly the brain, is going to suffer. So it's important not to have high blood sugar because high blood, and, and I'll just define it real quick. If you, if you do a fasting glucose test, either a finger prick uh, on a glucometer, which is whole blood, or, a, or you go to a lab and have your blood drawn, which is a serum test, the, the number should be around... Uh, 80. So we use a range of 76 to 92. There's a little bit of variability there. Once it gets into the mid to high 90s, over 100, certainly, uh, that's starting to become elevated uh, in a fasted state. And uh, the the chief reason for that is insulin resistance. So again, your your uh, the insulin isn't um, your liver isn't responding to the insulin well enough to hold back the glucose release. So, uh, so you don't want high blood sugar. Certainly you don't want blood sugar that's, you know, in 150, 200 range and above. That's very, very toxic 
to pretty much every cell in the body. The uh, But you don't want low blood sugar either. So if the blood sugar starts getting into the 60s and 50s or even low 70s for some people, um, that's not healthy because you don't have that fuel available to the brain. So what causes that? Um, it's basically, you know, we can think of this as just dysregulated uh, blood sugar. And, uh, you know, the body has a regulation system for keeping your blood sugar in a pretty tight range, just like it does body temperature and uh, blood pressure and other things. It, you know, it can go up a little bit after you eat, but it should come back down and it should come back down into a healthy range. So if it's dropping too low, either after exercise or after a, a meal, typically a higher carb meal, uh, usually what's happening there is you're having an over-release of insulin, but it's released uh, in, a, in a fasting state to hold back glucose. It's released after a meal to allow those uh, muscles and fat cells to absorb glucose. And uh, if you over-release insulin, you're going to get too much of that effect and your blood sugar can actually drop too low. Now, the other uh, side of that coin is adrenal function because your adrenals make hormones like cortisol and adrenaline, which have the opposite effect. They actually tell your liver to make and or release more glucose. So there's sort of a, um, like I like to think of those old radio dials where you sort of turn the knobs a little bit. And if you if you turn it too much to one side, it's staticky, too much to the other side, it's staticky. So you got to get it right there in the, in the right spot yeah, for anybody it. who's over like uh, maybe 35 or 40 understands what I'm talking about. So the um, the the idea there is you, you have to get those hormones dialed in properly. And of course, the body has an innate intelligence and inborn intelligence that does that for us, but that can become altered when our metabolic health or our adrenal health is uh, dis is dysfunctional. So it's an over-release of insulin, usually from uh, you know an existing state of insulin resistance or a high carbohydrate uh, diet, especially simple, you know, refined carbohydrates. And then uh, we usually on the other side of that, we don't have the adrenal health to balance that. So uh, we'll see the blood sugar drop too low. And then, you know, people can get, like you said, hangry. They can get dizzy or lightheaded. Uh, you know, they can become even delusion, you know, sort of have uh, delusions if it gets too low. Um, pass out. Pass out. Yeah. So it, it can become very, very dangerous. I mean, I've, you know, th these are people who usually are on insulin, but I've, I've had patients who, uh, you know, their family had to break the window of their car because they were in their car with it running and uh you know in sort of some some sort of altered state about to go drive somewhere in a hypoglycemic state so uh it can be super dangerous um you know most people don't experience that unless they're unless it's some you know drug induced basically but um but it can get low enough to be really uncomfortable or cause a lot of sugar carbohydrate cravings for people uh make them you know affect their mood certainly and it's it's not really a great way to live, you know, having to sort of manage your diet all day long so you don't drop into a low blood sugar episode. So, so the you know the solution there is a combination of uh, good insulin sensitivity, uh, a good healthy real food lower carb diet, and um, and adrenal health, making sure your adrenals are healthy so they can help regulate your blood sugar. Yeah, that's key, and and. You know, a lot of people with insulin resistance are overweight, obviously not all of them, but a lot of the people that I see that deal with these hypoglycemic episodes, people that I can think of that passed out. I mean, just even at my church in the last year, I think two or three people have passed out just during worship all every time it was due to a hypoglycemic episode. And these are people that were, these were typically young women, uh, teenagers or maybe in early 20s, right, who are pretty lean, right? So you would look at them and you think, well, they're probably pretty metabolically healthy from the outside. They look that way, but they're having this blood sugar dysregulation and hypoglycemia. Exactly. And, you know, probably had a donut or a bagel and some orange juice for breakfast yeah. and had an insulin spike. And then they're, you know, sitting in church, um, sort of relaxed and calm and 
the uh, blood sugar just starts dropping, you know, um, and you know, maybe they don't have that cortisol release from the adrenals and boom. Yeah, that's uh, the, yeah, I, I see that a lot. And, and young women and are those actually, neurons. Yeah. What is happening actually happening to the neurons that ends up causing those um, neurological symptoms? Are the neurons actually dying because they're not getting the glucose? And therefore, you're kind of getting this excitotoxicity because when one neuron dies, it spills out its contents all to other neurons and causing kind of like a cascade of death. Is that actually what's happening? Yeah, that's a good question. I, I haven't seen that um, data. And, um, you know, I don't, I, I would think that the neurons probably aren't dying, but they definitely go into a dysfunctional state, clearly, you know, they're, they're being starved. So, yeah. you know, they're, they're definitely not able to, um, you know, carry out their function, essentially. So I think, um, uh, you know, I'd have to probably look into that. It's, it's a really good question. In fact, I'll, I'll probably go go see if I can learn a little bit more about what's actually happening there. But um, but yeah, I, I would definitely say, you know, and this is true for any cell. I mean, if you don't give, yeah, obviously they need oxygen and other nutrients, yeah. but if you don't give them uh, some sort of fuel, glucose or fat to to burn for energy, and um, and and you know the brain's a little bit unique because uh, it's hard to get fat to the brain for for fuel because it doesn't fat doesn't cross the blood brain barrier. So you know the brain likes glucose and ketones basically for fuel. And uh, um, if you don't, if you know, if you're not in a ketogenic state and you're depending on glucose and you don't get the brain the glucose it needs, it's it's not going to work. Yeah, yeah, and that's my understanding is that those neurons they need a continual supply of glucose or ketones. And of course, if you've got, you know, high insulin at times, and if you've got blood sugar dysregulation, your body's not producing these ketones, at least not a sufficient quantities to be able to support, uh, the metabolic needs of the brain. And if your blood sugar is dropping, those neurons are not getting the supply that they need. And a certain percentage of them start to die off and kind of spill their contents and cause this sort of neuro excitotoxicity. So it's actually very, very dangerous yeah. Um, having these hypoglycemic episodes and a lot of people with type one diabetes, for example, obviously they're more prone to having it because they're not producing insulin. They need, um, they need, you know, supplemental insulin basically through, 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 uh, injections. And a lot of them end up with, uh, retinopathies, right. And so, mm -hmm. you know, which is kind of part of the brain. So the retina is like a, you know, it's part of your eye, but it's also, you know, our eye is basically like an attachment of the brain. Right. So a lot of these cells start to die. They end up with, you know, a lot of vision issues and, um, you know, other neurological issues as well. And there's also a strong link between somebody who has a lot of hypoglycemic um, episodes throughout their life and their risk for dementia, for, you know, developing Alzheimer's and things like that as well. Oh, yeah, definitely. And and type 2 diabetes, we see yeah. that. Um, you know, I do a lot of consultations and I would say... Uh, you know, probably 30 to 40% of the people who have type 2 diabetes at one point had pretty bad reactive hypoglycemia. I just wanted to take a quick moment to let you know that this episode of the Functional Nutrition Podcast is sponsored by our friends at Paleo Valley. They make the most powerful, pure vitamin C supplement you can get. Because unlike most vitamin C supplements containing synthetic ingredients that are created in the lab, Paleo Valley Essential C Complex is made from three of the most potent whole food sources of vitamin C on the planet. Nothing weird, just food. Check them out at paleovalley.com and use the coupon code JOCKERS, J-O-C-K-E-R-S, to get 15% off today. You know, we're talking about there's different ways that people will express their blood sugar dysregulation. So you have some individuals that they just have this, you know, they, they have this reactive hypoglycemia, like we talked about other individuals that it seems like their blood sugar is good. Their hemoglobin A1C may even look good, but they've got very high fasting insulin. Right. And then you've got other individuals that, you know, insulin doesn't seem to be terrible, but their sugar is high. Right. And then mm. you've got other individuals that have both high insulin and high blood sugar. Yeah. And so what is, what is happening when you have high for somebody that is diabetic, let's say they've got high blood sugar. You talked about how that's toxic for the neurons. What is actually happening? Like what, 
what are those sugar molecules actually doing? Yeah, yeah, that's a good question. And uh, so those are, you just described uh, three patterns there. And and I think, um, you know, maybe we should just talk about that for a couple of minutes, because I think it's important to look yeah. at that. Because people get confused, even, um, you know, even functional medicine practitioners and so forth sometimes get confused because, you know, insulin uh, in conventional medicine, it's just not looked at at all. Um, you know, rarely ever tested, maybe in cases of, you know, uh, like insulin or, or type yeah. one diabetes. Yeah. But yeah. Even, even that, they don't really look at insulin, maybe yeah. C peptide. But so, uh, so it's, it's largely ignored in, in conventional medicine and functional medicine and sort of, you know, nutritional medicine, you'll hear it talked about, oh, do a fasting insulin. And the normal is, you know, and the range is somewhere usually two to six, something like that, which, which I totally agree with. Um, but that is assuming blood sugar is normal. So um, if you have an insulin of five and your blood sugar is 300, that's not good, right? Yeah. So, you know, you're supposed to be making insulin to bring down your blood sugar. So in that case, you know, we wouldn't say, oh, wow, well, your blood sugar is high, but your insulin is totally normal. Now we would say, okay, your blood sugar is high and you're, you know, you're not making nearly enough insulin to be able to bring your blood sugar down there. So there's a couple problems, probably insulin resistant, but also um, something is starting to happen with the pancreas and the beta cells, which make the insulin not being able to produce enough. But that's usually late stage. So by the time somebody gets there, They've usually been dealing with this for decades. So what we see uh, in the early stages is, as you said, more normal blood sugar or slightly elevated. So it, maybe it's in the low hundreds. And then you check that fasting insulin. And instead of it being five, it's 15 or 30 or 50. And so those people are highly um, insulin resistant. And so they're having to make huge amounts of insulin to keep their blood sugar down. Now, fortunately, they're able to do that, so their pancreas is working, but uh, but it's it's going to take a huge toll on the pancreas over time, and then you'll see blood sugar will start to climb, uh, insulin will start to fall. So a lot of times we'll see somebody with a, a blood sugar of say like 130, 140, 150, which is diabetic, and then their fasting insulin will be like 10 or 15. And so those are people who are sort of in between those two, you know, they're starting to lose control of their blood sugar, they're still making insulin, um, which by the way, I just want to say, I know this is supposed to be about the brain, but this is a, um, this is a, a common misconception in conventional medicine, you know, once you're diagnosed with diabetes, most doctors just believe your pancreas at that point is sort of not making insulin or not making enough insulin. and um, and, and for most people, I mean, probably 80% of people with type 2 diabetes, the, in, the pancreas is making plenty of insulin. It's just uh, they're highly insulin resistant. Mm -hmm. And so all of this, of course, is related to the brain because the more insulin resistant you are, the higher your blood sugar is, and the higher your insulin levels are for you know a period of time, the more damage is being done to those, to those brain cells. Um, I sort of went off on a tangent. I, you had asked me a question there at the end. Yeah. So following up. So the high blood sugar, when sugar is high, what are the sugar molecules? Actually? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so yeah, once the, once the blood sugar gets high, uh, that's, you know, I talked about how high insulin can cause damage, inflammation and endothelial dysfunction and can affect kidney health, eye health and other things. Uh, well, high glucose, that's like a double whammy. Um, so that, that causes something called glycation to the form of sort of what we term oxidative stress. It's a, it's basically a damage to the delicate proteins in our cells, tissues, and organs that, um, that leads to, you know, dysfunction. So uh, we call these AGEs, advanced glycation end products. And so if you've ever seen like a, as people age, they get like dark spots on their skin or skin tags and things like that. Those are examples of visible AGEs, uh, advanced glycation end products. They're basically, uh, you know, mutated cells, damaged cells uh, from uh, oxidative stress. In this case, it would be from high glucose. So glucose, just like we talked about insulin, very important for the body. 
but when it gets elevated, glucose becomes very toxic. Yeah. So and we can yeah. we can measure glycation with the hemoglobin A1C, which is a form of glycation of the hemoglobin exactly. in our red blood cells. Yeah, yeah. And uh, so that's a great test for that very reason. If you want to know how much damage is happening to your brain and your blood vessels and the and your organs like your kidneys or your eyes, uh, the A1C is a good surrogate for that because we're measuring basically uh, damage done to the red blood cell. And the red blood cell also carries oxygen. The hemoglobin on the red blood cell carries oxygen. And when, you, when it's uh, sort of sugar-coated, or loaded down with glucose, it's not able to do that very well. So you get poor wound healing, poor circulation, you get uh, clotting, you get all kinds of problems from uh, uh, having a high A1C and, and dysfunctional red blood cells. But yeah, it's, mostly it's a window into the damage being done to your body. So normal A1C is uh, around four and a half to five and a half percent. It's a percentage of uh, glycation, or you think about it like uh, sugar stuck to the to the hemoglobin in the red blood cell. So normal is around four and a half to five and a half percent. If it gets over that, uh, then you know it starts impairing the function of the red blood cell. So if it gets up to six, seven, eight, you know, ten, I've seen people at fourteen. Hmm. So these are uh, you know obviously you know, causing massive damage. And there's been studies that show for every 1% that the A1C goes up, so like from six to seven, seven to eight, it's about 18 to 20% greater likelihood of any complication. That could be a heart attack, stroke, dementia, uh, kidney failure, you know, blindness, amputation, all of those things that are associated with so high for, blood sugar. For every 1% rise in hemoglobin A1C, there's an 18 to 20% rise in some sort of major health complication. Yeah. Risk of health complication. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Wow. yeah. So, so you you know, it's it becomes uh, almost log logarithmic when you see it go from, uh, you know, your A1C go from six to seven, which by the way, 7% is considered acceptable to most uh, general practitioners, at least mm -hmm. in the diabetic community. So uh, they would say, well, we don't want you to go too low for all the reasons we talked about earlier. So just keep it around seven. And, <laughs> you know, they figure they're going to develop complications anyway. So, you know, we don't want them rushed to the hospital and in the middle of the night where I got to go into the hospital and see them. So, you know, let's, uh, let's keep their blood sugar a little high, you know, that's safer they consider, but, you know, I, I think that's probably, um, you know, not great medicine. I think, I think it's, you know, we should always shoot for normal blood sugar. Uh, the, uh, the great uh, Dr. Richard Bernstein, who's a, a, a diabetic uh, advocate and endocrinologist has type one himself says, you know, everyone deserves normal blood sugar, especially mm -hmm. diabetics. So anyway, the, uh, but yeah, six to 7%, you're just increasing your likelihood of any of these problems by 18 to 20%. And as it gets higher than that, uh, it gets into really scary territory. Yeah, absolutely. And from, from a functional health perspective, I mean, I like to see it under 5.2, really oh, yeah. under five, you know, and we know that, Hey, there's less oxidative stress, less inflammation, less kind of browning. You know, I think about glycation, almost like browning inside of our yeah. body rusting. Um, and so there's less of that going on. It's going to slow down the aging process. You're going to feel better. You're going to get more oxygen delivery to all the different tissues of your body. So your heart's going to function better. We're talking about brain here. So your brain is going to function significantly better. So yeah, keeping that hemoglobin A1C under control is really important. And I'll see a lot of people when I look at labs where their fasting blood sugar looks okay. Their insulin looks good. It's in the right range, but their hemo hemoglobin A1C will be 5.7, 5.8, mm -hmm. you know, yep. are you seeing things like that as well? Yeah, yeah, and and so that that usually means that there's like wide blood sugar fluctuations, mm. and so the A1C is sort of you know it's picking up your blood sugar all the time. So you can those red blood cells can get glycated, um, you know, when you're eating or not eating or whenever the blood sugar is high. So you know if your fasting blood sugar is perfect, but when you eat it goes up to 180, um, and especially if it stays up for longer than you know, then it should, 
then uh, yeah, you're going to be, you know, you're going to have high blood sugar for too long. You're going to be experiencing glycation and that's, you know, that's going to affect your health. So, uh, and it you know, you'll see it reflected in the A1C. So I, that's why I think we have to look at all of these. Like you can't just do an yeah. A1C and say, oh, it's, you know, it's 5.4. So everything's great. Um, you know, if your blood, if your fasting blood sugar is like 110, um, you could potentially have an A1C of five and a half if like that's the highest it ever gets. That's still a problem. There's still something going on there with your with your uh, insulin sensitivity. So I think it's good to look at. And, um, you know, one thing you could do is wear a CGM, continuous glucose monitor, which will help you see those fluctuations throughout the day. They're not perfectly accurate when it comes to sort of um, monitoring your baseline blood sugar. So they yeah. can be off a little bit compared to what you get in a lab or with a glucometer, but they're really good for tracking changes and fluctuations. So, you know, you can see, okay, you know, after I eat this particular meal, how's, you know, what happens to my blood sugar after I do this particular type of exercise, what happens if I, you know, have a good night's sleep versus a bad night's sleep, what happens to my blood sugar in the morning? So, or, or even overnight. So the CGM is really good for that. And it can help you to sort of um, get a little bit more data on perhaps why your hemoglobin A1C is a little higher than you'd expect it to be. Yeah, that's really good. The CGM can really help identify certain foods that, you know, you think are healthy and um, perhaps your spouse responds really well to, right? They, they may be wearing a CGM and then you're not responding well to it for whatever reason, your blood sugar is going way up. Uh, when you consume that food, you may have a sensitivity and tolerance to it. You know, even things like coffee, you know, in a family, one spouse may be a, a normal caffeine metabolizer. Another spouse may be a very slow caffeine metabolizer. They drink the same cup of coffee one of them, their blood sugar goes way up, stays up. They feel fatigued, you know, or, or they feel overly anxious. The other individual feels great and they're able to perform at a really high level. So sometimes we don't even, you know, sometimes there's factors like that. Um, oh yeah. That yeah. can play a role. This podcast is sponsored by Liver Health Formula from Pure Health Research. For anyone looking to ignite their fat burning metabolism, boost their energy and transform how they look and feel, they must start taking care of their liver. Your liver is your body's master detoxifier. It performs over 500 key functions in your body every single day. It's responsible for cleansing and removing thousands of harmful toxins, man-made chemicals, alcohol, and dangerous food additives and preservatives. And after decades of wear and tear, our livers slow down and they become sluggish. And this is why so many of us struggle with weight gain and feeling tired all the time. Fortunately, there's a simple all natural solution that I recommend. It's called Liver Health Formula. Liver Health Formula contains 12 powerful botanicals clinically proven to recharge and protect your liver at the cellular level. It helps restore your liver's detoxifying abilities. It boosts your energy levels and can kick your natural metabolism into high gear. It also works remarkably well to fight fatty liver which is a silent epidemic affecting 100 million Americans. And right now, as a listener of our show, you can try Liver Health Formula completely risk-free and receive five free gifts when you order today. First, you're gonna receive a free 30-day supply of nano-powered omega-3. This powerful blend of omega-3 fatty acids supports a healthy heart and brain with four times better absorption thanks to this special nano delivery system. You're also getting four free eBooks to support every aspect of your health and longevity, regardless of age. Just go to getliverhelp.com forward slash jockers or call toll free at 800-282-1757 to claim your risk-free supply of liver health formula and all five bonus gifts. That's get liver help. So G E T L I V E R H E L P dot com forward slash jockers or call 800 282 1757. You're covered by their 365 day money back guarantee. So you have nothing to risk, but supplies are limited. So go head over to get 
liverhelp.com forward slash chalkers or call toll free at 800-282-1757 now to order liver health formula and claim your five free bonus gifts while you still can. That's getliverhelp.com forward slash chalkers or call 800-282-1757. Now let's talk about best strategies to get blood sugar, insulin back under control and support metabolic health. Yeah. So I think um, sometimes we have to look at big picture. I mean, there's a lot of things and you you do a great job of this. There's a, there's a lot of supplements and tools and things that can help protect the brain, can help with blood sugar. Um, but if we just take a step back and look at, you know, people who develop uh, Alzheimer's or, or other forms of dementia or have poor brain health, usually it's in people who are not metabolically healthy. So I think that's the first thing we have to look at is how do we produce good metabolic health? And a lot of that comes back to body composition. Um, so we we want to uh, make sure that we're insulin sensitive and uh, we can, you know, uh, we've talked a lot about that. We can talk more about it as far as maybe measuring that if, if we want to, but want to make sure we're insulin sensitive want to make sure that we have muscle, you know, as we age, especially we lose a lot of muscle and it's particularly people who are uh, maybe have struggled with their weight over their lifetime. They've done a lot of dieting and things, and they've uh, lost a lot of their muscle mass. And if you're not actively working on building muscle, uh, then you can end up with too little muscle mass on your frame. And muscle is, you know, really your best protector when it comes to, uh, glucose. It, it gives you a lot of metabolic flexibility. Um, you have more insulin receptors. You have more room to store glucose as glycogen. If you have more muscle, uh, you're going to just use more glucose and, and all fuel over the course of the day. Your metabolic rate is going to increase if you have more muscle. So all of those things, um, sorry about that. All of those things are reasons to want to build more muscle. And so, so that's really key. And then on the other side, we want to, you know, reduce excess fat and it's not just subcutaneous fat. I mean, uh, you know, there is a, there's genetic patterns for how we store fat. So some people, uh, store a lot of subcutaneous fat, the fat under their skin that sort of you know, leaves the sort of rolls and bulges and things. Um, other people store very little subcutaneous fat and uh, they can actually be in a more precarious situation because they may store, you know, they may only be say 15 pounds overweight, but most of that fat is stored around their organs or in their organs or their muscles. And so I think we've got to be a little bit careful with that. And we want to look at body shape, uh, we want to look at numbers like our triglyceride levels uh, on a blood test. We want to look at our fasting blood sugar on a blood test because those are going to give you signs about, you know, are is your body composition optimal or are you starting to develop some problems? And <clears throat> I mean, there are lots of, again, uh, sort of biohacks and and things that you can do to improve or protect your brain health. But I think the biggest thing is you just really you know, don't lose the forest for the trees. Make sure you're doing everything you can to become as metabolically healthy as possible. Yeah. So building muscle, burning fat. And we know muscle also has uh, unique hormones like myokines that actually help increase the the trophic or the growth factors in the brain like BDNF, yeah, neurotrophic. Exactly. Uh, nerve growth factor, things like that. Mm -hmm. So it's interesting. So not only do you get the metabolic benefits where you kind of have the glucose sponge effects in the muscle, but the muscle is actually releasing compounds that stimulate greater connectivity and uh, neuroplasticity, positive neuroplasticity in the brain, which will help prevent against dementia, age-related memory loss, different things like that. So yeah, super powerful there. So I, I'm, I'm huge on that. Good exercise. How about nutrition? What are some of the key nutrition principles? Yeah, so I, I think, um, you know, everything we talked about goes back to, you know, good blood sugar management and good, you know, good blood sugar control. And I think that's really important for brain health. Again, that is, unless you're, you know, fasting or purposefully uh, heavily carb restricted and, and ketogenic, your brain is going to be largely burning glucose. So we want to have a good steady 
uh, state of glucose in the bloodstream. You don't want it to be all over the place. And I think what we found is uh, the diets that do that best are going to be protein centric. So you're going to be focusing on protein. You are going to be restricting carbs to some degree, um, you know, compared to the standard American diet of three to 400 grams a day, you'll probably, you know, be somewhere in the, you know, I don't know, 75 to maybe hundred gram of carbs. If you're an, if you're, you know, highly active and you are metabolically healthy. Um, I think a lot of people can tolerate that, um, coming from healthy carb sources. And again, that's optional. You don't have to eat that many carbs, but you probably could tolerate that many. And then, um, and then the rest is, you know, healthy fat sources. So, you know, you are, uh, you're probably going to wake up in the morning in, uh, you know, some sort of mild, uh, nutritional ketosis. And then, uh, whenever you break your fast, you'll, you know, you'll shift into a fed state. You'll start burning the fuel that you're eating. Uh, you'll have normal insulin sensitivity. Your body will, will process and store the fuel that it doesn't burn right away. And, uh, you know, you'll get back into a good fasted state until it's time to eat again. And, and your body just maintains, uh, you know, a good, healthy, steady state, blood sugar, lipid level, and, um, uh, you know, and functions well, I think that's the best thing for the brain. So, you know, as far as diet goes, it's going to be a, you know, it's going to be protein centric because that protein is mm -hmm. going to stimulate muscle growth. It's going to be there to provide all those amino acids for, uh, the, the myriad functions in the body that amino acids are important for, and it's going to keep you satiated and full. And, um, you know, you're going to fulfill that protein hunger that, uh, that we all have. And then, uh, you know, nutrient dense carbs. So, you know, what you know, take your pick, you can eat a little or, or more, but, uh, you know, the leafy greens and maybe some low glycemic fruits and, uh, you know, healthy non-starchy vegetables. If you're an athlete and you're burning tons of calories and running and, uh, doing that kind of stuff, there's probably some room for some more starch in your diet. So that's, you know, that's a choice you can make, um, you know, or you can try to become like a keto athlete and, and, uh, and, and get your body super fat adapted. That's okay too. And then the, the healthy fats. So, you know, healthy fats are going to come from animal products, I think largely, and, um, and then some plant sources, avocado, and, you know, maybe some olives and a little bit of olive oil, that type of thing. I do try to recommend avoiding any type of refined uh, packaged food. So even, even from an oil perspective, um, you know, we'll use a little olive oil here and there, of course, but, um, or maybe some coconut oil and so forth, but, you know, these are still refined oils, really potent, um, high energy sources. So I think it's best to get our, you know, our fat from food, you know, from the food itself whenever possible. So, you know, uh, you know, that those are, I think the areas to emphasize on the fats and certainly avoiding the uh, this is not new news to the listeners here, but avoiding the, you know, the industrial seed oils, which are the highly processed uh, sort of quote unquote vegetable oils, which are uh, mostly linoleic acid, become oxidized and rancid and drive inflammation. And uh, they actually lead to insulin resistance, have a lot of metabolic byproducts like 4-HNE and others that, that drive inflammation. So uh, we want to avoid those. Yeah. And I'll, and I'll add in intermittent fasting as well with, uh, you know, when you're eating like this yeah. high protein, like you talked about healthy fats, lower carb, you'll end up having more satiety and the need to eat or the need to snack the drive to eat, uh, throughout the day goes down. And that's a really good thing. And, and fasting helps stimulate autophagy. And this is key, especially when we ta start talking about neurodegenerative conditions or really all brain related conditions. Cause we even know, like, for example, depression is related to brain inflammation, and so as we start to go into a fasted state um, for periods of time, like let's say 12, 14, 16, 18 hours overnight, we start to bring down that inflammation, improve our insulin sensitivity. And then also um, when people start developing the, like we talked about beta amyloid, these plaques in the brain, this is a sign of proteotoxicity or protein right. toxicity. And that's not related to protein in our diet but it's actually related to an inability to break down and repair damaged proteins in, in different regions of the body, like in this case, the brain. And so when we fast like that, we undergo autophagy and our body actually starts to break down these damaged proteins and starts to regulate them and eliminate the bad stuff. 
And we combine that with good sleep, which act, helps activate our glymphatic system. You already mentioned exercise, really important for the glymphatic system. We drain the damaged proteins, the protein waste out of our brain through our lymphatic system and out through our, you know, uh, all of our detoxification systems, our, our feces, our, our urine, Absolutely. things like that. And we get rid of all this bad protein in the brain. And this is something we need to be doing regularly. So, so critical there. And, you know, and, and I think uh, I, I mentioned something about this earlier, but I, I think this is probably can be the biggest takeaway from this talk today is that I, I do believe that dementia and Alzheimer's is an accumulation problem. Yeah. And uh, it, ha it really happens because we're not breaking down mm. those damaged proteins in the brain. And, uh, you know, insulin is a potent stimulator of mTOR and it stimulates mTOR uh, in all the wrong places. So when you, uh, your protein sometimes gets a bad rap because it stimulates mTOR, but it stimulates mTOR in the muscles. It's pretty specific to the muscles because it's stimulating muscle protein synthesis. Uh, insulin stimulates mTOR in the liver, the brain, and other places. So the problem with that is if you're walking around with high insulin 24 hours a day, which, I mean, I would say 90% of the people I test are, they're never uh, really in that accelerated autophagy state. And even if they're fasting, so, you know, they may fast for, say, they might be doing like some time-restricted feeding, and so, you know, they say, well, I don't eat until noon every day, but we test their insulin at noon right before they eat. And it's still like 15. Well, guess what? You're not getting those benefits of autophagy because you're still high insulin. You're still insulinemic. You're still turning on mTOR uh, and you're, you're kind of blocking that pathway. So, um, so yes, fasting is incredible. Uh, sometimes people who are you know, insulin resistant do have to fast longer to start to see those benefits. Um, and just as a side, I'm not a big fan of, of sort of multiple day fast for most people, at least not on a regular basis, but, um, but certainly, you know, anything up to a 24 hour fast, you've got plenty of stored glycogen on board. You're not really going to have to break down muscle tissue for glucose at that point. So, so yeah, I, I, I love like alternate day fasting, for example, for people who are insulin resistant. Mm. Yep. And you start stacking in exercise resistance training with that, yep. uh, super key. What are your top, let's say two or three supplements that you'd like? for helping mm -hmm. support insulin resistance? Uh, inositol is great, um, a really important compound. Um, berberine can be helpful. It's a, uh, basically uh, has a kind of a pleiotropic effect on the body. So it acts on the liver to suppress the release of glucose, um, similar to what metformin does, uh, which is a diabetes drug. Mm -hmm. um, it, uh, activates AMPK, which is a, a nutrient sensor that basically is, you know, one of the things that's turned on with fasting and it, um, you know, helps our body to uh, burn energy. And um, uh, so berberine can kind of accelerate that process, which is good. And uh, let's see, um, for insulin sensitivity, um, those are probably the top two. I also like um, chromium and yeah. biotin combined. Mm, uh, they're good, yeah. really good for, yeah, for glucose tolerance and zinc. So zinc yeah. is something that is important. You know, we think about it with immune health, which it, it does have some functions there, certainly prostate health, but has um, has a lot, of, lot to do with insulin uh, production release and... Uh, insulin sensitivity. Hmm. So zinc is, um, yeah, zinc is is involved in the um, you know production and release of insulin, which is basically insulin's a protein. It's a fifty one amino acid protein made in the pancreas, um, and zinc is sort of important in constructing that, and then and in its release and and in the uh, response at the cell. Um, and then one last thing I'll say, this is sort of a secondary effect, but anything that reduces inflammation, chronic systemic inflammation, um, I prefer to do that, out, you know, from a root cause perspective, but 
um, if you're looking for short-term inflammation relief, like, you know, curcumin or other mm. anti-inflammatory herbs yeah. can be helpful. Omega-3s, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Really good stuff, Dr. Brian. This has been a great interview. We went through a lot of really good topics. Really appreciate that. And where can people find out more about you? Yeah, thank you for that. Uh, you know, website is drmole.com. That's D-R-M-O-W-L-L.com. Uh, there's a something on there called Blood Sugar Manifesto, which is just a, uh, you know, sort of a 45-page guide on how to improve blood sugar and metabolic health, which you can get for free. Um, podcast is Mastering Blood Sugar, so check that out. And um, that's probably the best way to get on the mailing list. Yeah. And then, you know, we'll and you got a great book to the ProFast Diet, guys. Going to check that one out as well. I appreciate that. Awesome. Absolutely. Thanks so much, Dr. Mole. Well, that's all for this show. And I want to thank you again for spending your valuable time with me today. And if there was something you heard in this interview that you have questions on or you want to dive into deeper, then drjockers.com is the best place to go. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider taking just a quick moment and giving us a great review. Your reviews help us influence more people and transform more lives. And if you took something valuable away from this episode, then please share it with someone in your life you know it can help. We'll see you soon on a future podcast. Be blessed, everybody.